At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Uh, Good morning. Uh, If we've not had an opportunity to meet, my name is Kurt McDonald. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and uh, I have the great privilege of bringing to you God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he add his blessing to it. I'd like to begin this morning with a question. Uh, This sermon does not have a parental advisory warning on it, but it does have an emotional advisory warning on it, so you've been warned. Here's the question. Should a Christian ever feel shame? Should a Christian ever feel shame? If a Christian uh, is saved, uh, their sins have been forgiven, God has forgiven us of our past, present, and future sins, should we ever feel shame for sin? Or what if something terrible has been done to you? It's not a sin that you committed, but it's a sin that was committed against you. Should you feel shame for that sin since Jesus has made you a new creation? Or we can broaden that question a bit, maybe not just specifically Christians, but should a person ever feel shame in a world that encourages you to live your own truth? In, in a culture that says the, the only thing that's unacceptable is to say that a person's particular lifestyle is unacceptable. In that type of culture, is there any room for shame? In, in, a, in a culture that says the only sin is calling something sin, is there room for shame in a culture like that? Well, let's back up and ask the question, what is shame? The definition will come up on the screen. I've defined it this way. Shame is a painful feeling of humiliation or distress usually caused by foolish behavior, exclusion, or abuse. So that feeling that you get, foolish behavior, it's it's when you walk back into that sin again and again and again, and you begin to feel like you are a terrible person because other people have figured out how to not do this thing, but you haven't figured out how to not do it, and you keep doing it. Therefore, it's foolish behavior, and you feel shame because of it, or sometimes uh, it's exclusion. You've been excluded from that friend group, excluded from that promotion, meaning you're not good enough. And again, abuse could cause us to feel shame. That would be physical abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, sexual abuse. Those things can cause us to feel shame because oftentimes the victim feels like it's their fault even when it's totally not. What do we do with that shame? Shame happens when we sin, when we are overcome with that feeling of, I can't believe I did that again. And let me, I don't want to overemphasize this point, but I do want to make this slight distinction between guilt and shame. Here it is. Guilt says, what I did was terrible, and shame says, you are terrible. So while guilt is seeing what you've done, shame is seeing yourself as a failure because of what you've done. Guilt is looking at the sin, and shame is looking at yourself. And if you allow yourself to meditate on guilt, it's guilt that then turns into shame. And so shame happens when We sin. Shame happens when we're excluded. Shame happens when we're abandoned. 
and because I'm not good enough for this person to love me or to want me. Maybe that's a, a father, maybe that's a spouse, but it causes us to feel shame. We feel shame, uh, again, when there's been physical, emotional, sexual abuse. And so back to our original question, should a Christian ever feel shame? Well, here's the answer. A Christian should feel shame if they have done something to dishonor Jesus as a pathway to repentance. Now, let me just prove this to you. 1 Corinthians 6, 5, listen to what the Apostle Paul has to say. Paul says this to the Corinthian church, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? So what was happening in the church in Corinth is they were suing each other. They were taking each other to court out in, in the world instead of solving their problems within the church. And he says, you should feel ashamed about that. And the reason that he is wanting them to feel shame is a pathway to repentance. He doesn't want them to stay in their shame. He wants that shame to be a pathway to repentance. And so it is okay for a Christian to feel shame when they have done something to dishonor Christ. But on the other side of that coin, we should not feel shame for sin that we have truly repented of. We should not feel shame when we have been excluded because we are totally included in Christ. And we should not feel shame when we have been abused because it's not your fault. And with that said, what happens when we still do? Because what I'm saying is in those instances where you truly have repented of sin, in those instances where you have been excluded, in those instances where you have been abused, you should not feel shame, but often we do. Anybody in the room? Let me just tell you a story about me and about my life. I, I had some Jonah times. Anybody have any Jonah times? When, when you know that God had placed a call on your life, yet you were running away from him. I had that time in my life, and during that, listen, I am 100% in or 100% out. That's how I live my life. So when I'm following Jesus, I'm 100% in, and when I wasn't following Jesus, I was 100% out. And I did things and said things and experienced things that I feel shame about, and it was not too long ago that I saw somebody from my past. You ever been there? It's, it's like, oh, oh God. Oh, I, I do not want to have this conversation today, Lord. And I was filled with shame, church family. And look, I can, I can quote chapter and verse to you. I know that I should not feel shame because I know that Jesus has forgiven me of those sins of my past. I've even asked that particular person that I saw. I asked for their forgiveness. I know all of the scripture. I can quote you chapter and verse, but in that moment, I felt shame. What are we to do with that? What, what do we do with that particular type of shame. And so an even more important question is this, what do we do with our shame? So I could go on and on about whether we should or should not feel shame, but the reality is that we absolutely do. Every single person in this room struggles with shame to one degree or another. And so church family, I have good news for you this morning. If you have sinned, Jesus says, I will forgive you of your sin. And Jesus removes shame by repeatedly and unapologetically cleansing you of your sin. Amen. Jesus says, I will remove the shameful sin from your past as far as the east is from the west. If you have been excluded, Jesus says, I will include you in my family and in my kingdom. If you have been abused, Jesus says, my blood will expiate your shame. So you see, we have to understand the difference between justification and expiation. Are you with me this morning? 
So justification is a declaration that your sins have been forgiven and an application of Jesus' work to you. That's justification. Expiation then is something different. Expiation speaks of a removing and, and the Old Testament talks about sin this way. The Old Testament talks about sin in a way that is defiling. Sin, sin defiles us or sin makes us dirty, whether we have committed that sin or sin has been committed against us. We, we feel dirty. We feel shame. And the powerful blood of Jesus then expiates or removes that dirt and filth from us and makes us clean. That is the power of the blood of Jesus. So today we are here to praise Jesus because he takes away our shame. Praise him. Praise him. I have two main ideas today. Usually I only have one, but today I have two. We're going to be looking at two separate stories. Here's the first main idea if you're taking notes. Jesus cleanses us and takes away our shame. Jesus cleanses us. He expiates the guilt that is on our soul. He, he expiates the shame that we feel. That's how powerful Jesus is. So Jesus cleanses us and takes away our shame. Secondly, second main point or big idea. Jesus forgives us and takes away our shame. Again, the sins from past, present, and future. He removes from us as far as the east is from the west. Okay, let's look at our outline. A little bit of a heavy sermon today, I understand. Here's our outline. First, we're going to see this. Jesus cleanses a leper. He cleanses a, a leper in verses 12 to 13. Secondly, Jesus gives instruction and explanation in verses 14 to 16. Then we'll jump into that second story about the paralyzed man. Jesus forgives sins, verses 17 to 20. And fourthly and lastly in our outline, Jesus heals a paralytic in 21 to 26. Oh, that today might be a day of cleansing and healing and removal of shame as we feed our shame the truth of the gospel. I pray that's what will happen in this sermon today, that the shame that you feel will be fed by the gospel. You see, church, church family, shame, shame is like a knife. A knife is neither good or bad. A knife can be used for surgery, can it? A scalpel to, to cut away what doesn't need to be there, but a knife can also stab and so today we're speaking into this stabbing shame that we feel, and we want to feed that shame the truth of the gospel, and I pray this sermon would serve to do that. Let's look at this. First, Jesus cleanses a leper in 12 to 13. Verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of of leprosy. Now, we're assuming this is um, what we know today as, as Hansen's disease. This is a terrible infection caused by slow-growing bacteria. It causes skin issues. It causes growths and sores. It even causes nerve damage to where you can no longer feel your extremities. It can cripple your hands and your feet. It causes uh, paralysis and blindness. Uh, but uh, if you understand anything about the Old Testament, when it speaks of leprosy, it can refer to any number of skin diseases. If you, if you go read Leviticus 13 and 14, there are actually several um, skin diseases that are laid out for us, and they're all called leprosy. So we're not exactly sure if this is Hansen's disease specifically of what this man has, but notice what Dr. Luke and Dr. Luke alone 
gives us this detail. It says that this man was full of leprosy. This account is told in uh, the, the other gospel accounts, and they don't include that. It is only Dr. Luke who tells us that this man is full of leprosy. Look at this. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. What, what you need to know about this man coming to Jesus is that he is not only full of leprosy, but he is full of shame. The reason this man is full of shame is because of how they viewed this particular disease. This particular disease was viewed by that culture, by those people as divine punishment from God for sins that you had committed or sins that your parents had committed. That this was seen in the Old Testament, not only as a disease, but as a picture of spiritual sinfulness. Leprosy is a picture of spiritual sinfulness in the Old Testament repeatedly. And so this man is coming to Jesus, not just uh, with his problem, not just with his skin issue, but he's coming because he feels shame for what he has. Just, just look at it. I wish we had time to go all the way through Leviticus 13 and 14, but we don't. But let's just look at Leviticus 13, 45 through 46. This is the instruction given to the people of God. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let their hair hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip. He, he, he has to wear torn up clothes, he can't fix his hair, and he has to wear a mask, is, is what they're saying. Look at it. And he has to cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has this disease. Look at this. He is unclean. He shall live alone. He shall dwell outside the camp. Look, church family, this is, this is a living death sentence. Imagine, so because it's an infectious disease, they have to remove him from the community so other people don't get infected. But think about what this does to him emotionally. He, he can't have dinner with his wife. He can't hug his kids. He can't hang out with his friends. He can't earn an income. He, he can do nothing. They, they are totally separated from the entire community. They're, they're, the, the lepers then would kind of form uh, leper communities, and the only human touch that he ever receives is from another leper. That is, if there is that type of community where he lives. Th this is a living death sentence, 100%. Again, imagine being a man and not being able to provide for your family that would give you a feeling of shame not being able to to be with your wife a feeling of shame not being able to provide for your children that feeling of shame this is what this man is experiencing and so can you see the picture then of how this community views this leprous man and here he comes breaking the rules by the way the Old Testament law he breaks by coming into the community. He's not supposed to, but he does anyway. He breaks social norms. And so I want you to get this picture in your mind of this man uh, covered with leprosy, filled with shame, coming to Christ. And as he enters the room, just imagine the people parting like the Red Sea, desperately trying to get away from this man. It's, it's amazing that he wasn't immediately stoned to death. And, and maybe he even thought, if they do stone me to death, it's better than the life I'm leading now. And so he takes his infirmity, his shame to Jesus. Look at what he says. 
He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Notice that he doesn't ask the Lord to heal him. Speaking out of his place of shame, he asked the Lord to make him clean. Now, interestingly enough, he does not doubt Jesus' ability. Did you see that there? He says, Lord, if you will, you can do this. He believes that Jesus can make him clean, but his question is directed to the willingness of the Lord, not to the ability of the Lord. Look at this, verse 13. This is shocking. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. You, you have to imagine the scene in your mind as Jesus begins to stretch out his hands towards the leper. You can hear the disciples and the crowds going, no, 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 don't, don't touch him. Because Jesus, if you touch him, then you are now ceremonial unclean and this whole thing's over. Like, we gotta go back home. You gotta go through, like, don't, 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 just don't touch him, whatever you do. But Jesus reaches out and touches him. Now, you have to understand the significance. This is Jesus, the living Word, meaning he could heal this man with a word. He could speak and heal this man without touching him. As a matter of fact, do you remember Jesus standing in front of his, the temple of his friend who died, Lazarus, and with a word, he says, Lazarus, come forth, and he does. He didn't have to go in the, in, inside the tomb and touch Lazarus. He resurrected him from the dead with a word. So he does not have to touch this man, yet he reaches out and places a hand on him and cleanses him. Incredible, incredible. Church family, if you're taking notes, please, please write this down. Jesus will draw near to you in your shame. Jesus will draw near to you in your shame. He's not repulsed by you. Jesus is not recoiling from you because of the things that you've done or the things that have been done to you. Jesus draws near to you in your shame. As a matter of fact, on the cross, Jesus took the shame from all of us onto himself. Jesus took the shame from all the sins that have been committed against you. All of the sins that you have committed, all the shame that comes from all of that, Jesus has already drawn near to you on the cross and taking that shame onto himself, and he is willing to do it again. This is the God that we, the God that we serve. What is so incredible about this exchange is that Jesus is not polluted by the leper. The leper is cleansed by Jesus. <laughs> the leper doesn't make Jesus dirty. Jesus' healing touch is so powerful. He is not contaminated by this leper. Rather, he cleanses him and makes him clean and removes his shame. The commentator Del Ralph Davis has this to say, he says, Jesus did not contract uncleanness, but communicated cleansing. So Jesus is not disgusted by you or what's been done to you. He wants to cleanse you and set you free from your shame. Let's look then at the second point of our outline. Jesus gives instruction and an explanation. What is so interesting, look at verse 14. It says this, and he charged him to tell no one. <laughs> Uh, now, there's great debate amongst the commentators about why Jesus continues to do this throughout the Gospels. He'll heal somebody and be like, shh, just, you know, keep that between me and, you know, don't, don't tell anybody. He, he does that several, several times. He, he tells people not to tell. It's like, 
why wouldn't Jesus want him to tell? So again, there's great debate, but uh, long story short, Jesus is working on a divine timeline. The things that Jesus does and says ultimately gets him killed, right? <laughs> by what he says, by what he calls himself, by ascribing divinity to himself, by healing on the Sabbath, by doing what he says and does gets him killed. And Jesus is angling to get killed at just the right time. <laughs> so he, he is on a divine timeline. And so he's kind of slowing the information that goes out about who he is and what he does uh, by telling people not to tell. And he charged him to tell no one, but Here's the instruction that Jesus gives, the instruction, the explanation. Here it is. But go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Again, Leviticus 14 describes this big, long process to where if you've had leprosy, you have to go to the priest and the, the priest essentially functions as a health inspector, looks you over, makes sure all the you know, disease is gone. Uh, there, there's then a series of sacrifices and uh, there is like an eight day process, this whole big long thing. At the end of it, you get your certificate, which says you can enter back into the community and back into life. And so Jesus here is just obeying the Old Testament scripture. He heals him. He says, but hey, just because you're healed, still go do the thing. Like go obey the law of Moses. And that's, that's what the man does. But now, even more, the report about him, I'm in uh, verse 15, but now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, verse 16. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. I wish I, wish I had time to preach on verse 16, but I don't, I don't, I, I have to move on. But I will say this, with all of the fame, Jesus does not allow that to turn into himself, yeah. he, he turns to the Father and draws away to a desolate. But don't, don't say amen because I got to move on. I want to keep talking. No, 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 don't do that. I, I, no, 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 I'm sticking to my notes. Three, point three, here we go. Jesus forgives sins in verse 17 through 20. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. I think if you've grown up in church, been around you know, church in the South, when we read on those days, there was the Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there immediately. We, we hear Pharisee and we go, boo, you know, we don't like you. But before you boo and hiss at the Pharisees, understand what these men are and understand what they're trying to do. These are the, hey, let's get back to the Bible guys. The, these are the guys that were concerned that the outside culture was influencing the people of God more than the word of God was influencing the people of God. This was their concern. And so don't, don't immediately throw these guys under the bus. I mean, isn't it great that they're trying to point people back to the Bible? Isn't that what we're trying to do as a, as a community? Point people back to the word so they can see Jesus? I mean, we're Bible people, and, and, and so were they. They, they were concerned that the, the community was being way too influenced by the culture. That's one of our concerns, amen? But here's what these guys did. They, they externalized their relationship with God instead of internalized, meaning they obeyed God not out of a sense of love, but out of a sense of duty. So that's where they went wrong. But here they are. And apparently they're coming from everywhere, from every village of Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem. There he is. The power is with Jesus to heal. Look at verse 18. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was 
paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So first we saw the man with leprosy and now we see a man who is paralyzed. And so even with all the advancements we have in modern medicine, people who are paralyzed or disabled often express a sense of shame. It's that, that sense of shame that they're not able to do what others can do. They're not able to provide. They need to constantly be served. They don't have the ability to take care of the regular task, going to the restroom, feeding yourself, um, all of that type of thing. That is the care that they have to receive. And with that comes for this man, just like the leper, a sense of shame. These people were forced to beg for a living, no aid, no trained professionals to help them. There was no government programs that, that helped aid these people in their infirmity. Beyond that, it was not just those with leprosy, but anybody with leprosy who was paralyzed or any serious medical condition at all, these people believed that they were cursed of God. As a matter of fact, let me just read to you John, uh, a, a scene from John 9, verses 1 and 2. Maybe you were here when we preached through the gospel of John. That was a long time ago. Listen to this. As he passed by, as Jesus is passing by, he saw a man blind from the birth. And his disciples asked, listen to what the disciples say about this man who is blind. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Again, you have to understand how this culture views this type of medical infirmity. Again, whether it be leprosy, whether it be being paralyzed or being blind, if you were infirmed in this way, they believed you were cursed of God. Now, we can kind of sit here a bit smugly and say, oh, but we're way more spiritual and advanced. You know, we don't believe that way anymore. But how often do we find physical infirmities or even problems with our children and the doctor says that it's cancer and we find ourselves crying out to God, God, where are you? What are you doing? I'm cursed of God now. So we're tempted to believe the same way that they, that they believe. So these men are bringing their friend to Jesus, but there's a problem. They can't get this man to Jesus. Look at verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, <laughs> they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. So, so these houses, okay, but just get, get the picture in your mind. Th these houses were usually uh, had flat roofs that were thatched and covered with mud and then tiles. They had exterior staircases where you could go up and get on top of the house. People would you know, hang their laundry there and th th that sort of thing. And so these men, they can't get into the house. So uh, imagine a regular gospel community, church community group. The house is packed. Uh-huh. There, like, there's nowhere to move around. Like, the house is packed 100%. And Jesus is there leading a Bible study. Who wants to go to that community group? I'm in on that. All of the sudden, there is banging noises. There's, there's scratching and scraping noises going on. And you're sitting there in the community group going, what is, I can't, you're straining now to hear Jesus because of all the noise. And then all of a sudden, the roof literally starts falling in. There is sticks and dried mud that come pouring in onto Jesus and onto the people in the front of the Bible study. And, and now the whole place is filled with dust because of the dried mud and it's everywhere. And as the dust begins to settle and you see through the cloud of dust, there is a man on a bed being lowered down with ropes. That's what's happening. Look what Jesus says, verse 20. 
and when he saw their faith. In, the, in all of that, in the mud and the sticks and the dust and the noise, he sees their faith. Je- Jesus does not see their interruption. Hey guys, I'm, I'm, in the middle, I'm in the middle of a Bible study here, guys. Cut me a break. As a matter of fact, this is Jesus's main ministry. He has come to preach, but Jesus does not see their interruption. In addition, Jesus <laughs> does not see the mess they made. I mean, there's junk everywhere. There's dust and mud, and, but Jesus doesn't see the mess they made. Jesus doesn't see the property damage. Hey, guys, they're not going to let me lead a Bible study here no more, guys. You tore up the house. In addition, Jesus does not see, listen, Jesus does not see their insignificance. Do you know these men are not named in this passage? And he's Jesus right? He, he doesn't say, who do you think you are interrupting me? You guys are nobodies and I'm Jesus. What Jesus sees is he sees their faith. He does not see the interruption. He does not see the mess they made. He doesn't see the property damage. He doesn't see their insignificance. He sees their faith. And this is what he says in verse 20. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus is forgiving him of sins against a holy God, which only God can do. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 43, 25 says this, God speaking through Isaiah, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Who blots out transgressions? God blots out transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. It is God alone who can forgive sins because ultimately sin is against God. So by declaring his sins are forgiven, he is proclaiming his divinity. Jesus is proclaiming his divine sonship. Jesus is proclaiming equality with the Father because Jesus knows the work that he is going to do. Jesus knows what he is going to accomplish on the cross so that he can say with full authority to this man, his sins are forgiven. If you're taking notes, if you take your sins to Jesus... He will forgive you and take away your shame. Church family, Jesus will not belittle you. Jesus will not berate you. Jesus will not shame you. He will forgive you and take away your shame. So there's the scene. (laughs) The roof's been torn open. The man is at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus looks directly at him and with full authority in his divine sonship says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now imagine you're the guy on the roof. What did he say? He said his sins are forgiven. Oh, that's, that, that's not why we tore the hole in the roof, but uh, that's, that's good. His sins are forgiven. Anything else, Jesus? Right? I mean, all the effort to tote him up the stairs and dig a hole in the roof and lower him down and Jesus says his sins are they they wanted Jesus to heal the guy but instead Jesus forgives his sins it is because Jesus addresses his deepest need first are you aware that this was this man's greatest need this man's greatest need was not to walk again because if Jesus heals him and he walks again and does not address his soul then this man's body will just continue to decay until he goes into the grave and if his soul issues are not addressed if his shame is not addressed that it is associated with his sin then he will be separated from God forever and so healing a temporal body is not Jesus's end that's why he begins with forgiving his sin 
Now, all eyes are on the man who's been lowered. All eyes are on Jesus. They've just heard him say, your sins are forgiven. And can you just imagine what's going on in the background, particularly what's going on in the background of those Pharisees? Oh, they don't like this. He said, what? what? I'm sorry? Who does he think he is? Look at verse 21. We're in part four. Jesus heals the paralytic in 21 to 26. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So church family, to be clear, in his own authority, Jesus declares them forgiven. So we can only say they're forgiven on the authority of God's word. So I can tell you that your sins are forgiven, right? As, as a Christian and as a pastor, I can tell you, if you have placed your faith on Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. I can say that. But I can only say that on the authority of God's word. That's the authority that I have is the authority of God's word. Here, Jesus is using the authority of his own word to declare this man's sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the scribes don't like that. Not into it. Not about that life. So apparently they're not necessarily saying this out loud. So, so they're not complaining. They're not like in the middle of the Bible study, raising their hand. Hey, Jesus, you're not. They might be saying it to each other, but they're not saying it directly to Jesus. We know that because of what, happens next. Look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up and walk? Now, I spent a lot of time thinking about this question posed by Jesus this week. It's a curious question, and, and you can kind of miss what he's really saying if you're not careful. Because he says, which is easier? Okay, two, there's two options here. Your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. Initially, I go, both are impossible to say. Right? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven? What does Jesus have to do in order to say to us, our sins are forgiven? Well, he has to go to the cross. Is that easy or hard? On the other hand, he says, well, the other thing is I could just tell him to get up and walk. And again, who in here like wants to come up on stage and just start a healing ministry and I'm just gonna start doing it? Well, that's pretty difficult too. So I was kind of confused by the question. Anybody else confused now? You might've had a pretty good idea, but I just confused you. If I did, I apologize. <laughs> Jesus here is focusing on the saying, meaning he's saying, which is easier to say? Meaning when Jesus declares that this man's sins are forgiven, in that public gathering, there's no visible evidence that his sins are forgiven. You can't see his sins washing away with your eyes. You, you just can't. Uh, they couldn't hear the declaration in the halls of heaven that this man is now justified. So there's no physical evidence. So Jesus is saying, which is easier to say? His sins are forgiven? There's no physical evidence here for you guys to see that his sins are actually forgiven. Or do you want some evidence? Rise up and walk. That's the question that Jesus then is posing there. So again, look at verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to rise up and walk? Look at verse 24. But that you may know. Jesus tells the scribes and the Pharisees, I'll prove it. I will prove to you that this man's sins are forgiven. 
but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the man who was paralyzed i say to you rise pick up your bed and go home and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying god and amazement seized them all and they glorified god and filled with awe saying we have seen extraordinary things today the bed that he was carried in on he picks up and walks out with absolutely incredible the power of jesus both of these healings the healing of the man with leprosy and the healing of this man who was paralyzed they were both public visible undeniable and you notice this about both of them they were both instant as soon as jesus touched the man with leprosy the leprosy was gone. As soon as Jesus says, get up and walk, the man gets up and walk. They are both public, visible, undeniable, and instant. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? The point Jesus is making is that just as sure as this man picked up his mat, his sins are forgiven. If you're asking the question, is this man's sins really forgiving? You ask the question, is he up and walking around? If he's up and walking around, his sins are forgiven. That's the point that Jesus is making by healing this man. If you're taking notes, Jesus has the authority to declare your sins are forgiven. He has the authority to do it. He absolutely does. So no matter how long you've been dwelling on your sin, allowing that guilt to turn into shame, Jesus says you're forgiven. No matter how many times others bring up your past sins in an effort to shame you, Jesus says you are forgiven. He has the authority to declare you forgiven because he is equal with the Father, and it is by that forgiveness that the shame is taken away. Praise him. Praise him. So I'll close with this. The same question we began with. What do we do with our shame? The shame of the leper that comes to Jesus. The shame of the paralyzed man who comes to Jesus. What, what do we do as sinful brothers and sisters who, again, might, might even know the chapter and verse to quote to say, hey, I know I'm not supposed to feel shame because I've been forgiven. I, I know I'm not supposed to feel shame because the, the, that abuse that was given towards me, that's not my identity. My identity is in Christ. We might know that, but we still feel shame. What are we to do with that? Here it is. Let Jesus take away your shame. Meaning, give that shame to Jesus. And again, you might say, but pastor, I've already done that and I still feel shame. Here's the answer. Feed your shame the truths of the gospel. Feed your shame the truths of the gospel. What do I mean? Let me just be as practical as I can. I've, I've written out these three examples. Again, an example for us who have just, we've just been sinfully foolish. How does the gospel then speak to that shame? Others have, has, have been excluded or abandoned and you feel shamed because you've been excluded or abandoned by a spouse, by a father, by a mother, by... And the gospel speaks directly into that. So you need to feed that shame the gospel or, or there are people in the room who've been abused physically, mentally, spiritually, sexually. And church family, the gospel is powerful enough to even speak into that. So let me just rehearse these with you. If, if in your soul you're saying, I'm, 
I'm horrible. I'm a terrible person. I'm the worst kind of person. Why do I keep doing this kind of thing again and again and again? Other people have figured out how to not walk in this, but I'm such a horrible person. I can't figure out how to not do this when other people have. Well, the gospel says you're a new creation, a child of the king. Believe that this is who Jesus says that you are in Christ. You are known and loved by the king of the universe because of his sacrifice on the cross. You are cleaned and cleansed. The gospel speaks directly into that. Or how about this? If you feel shame because you've been excluded or abandoned, feed that shame the gospel. Meaning this, remind yourself that you have been included because of the gospel in spiritual blessing in a forever family. God has predestined works for you to do. God has included you in a forever kingdom. God is calling you to rule and reign with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. You have been included in that. You've been included in that. So no matter who in this world excludes you or abandons you, Jesus never will. He never will. And so when we start to feel that kind of shame, we feed it the gospel. We feed it the gospel. And thirdly, you may feel shame because of what someone else has done to you. But church family, the gospel says, you are not what someone else has done to you. That is not your identity. That's not who you are. You're a child of God. So no matter what someone else has done to you, the gospel says that you are a new creation. Your identity is not in what has happened to you, but your identity is firmly rooted in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and who he says that you are, not what's been done to you. We've got to feed that stabbing shame, the truth of the gospel. Isaiah 50 verse seven says this, but the Lord God helps me. Anybody need help from the Lord God today? But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Or Romans 10, 11, and I'll conclude with this verse. For with the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Would you let Jesus take away your shame today? Let's pray together. Oh God, we see the shame of the leper. We see the shame of the man who was paralyzed and we identify today with those men in their shame. And Lord, we ask that you would come and take away stabbing shame. God, not the shame that pushes us on to repentance, but the misplaced shame which plagues our souls. Oh God, would you send your powerful Holy Spirit even now to work on our souls, the souls of the people of Gospel Community Church, those who walked in this morning, maybe trying to ignore it, but truly feeling stabbing shame. God, would you minister the gospel to their souls, minister the truth of the gospel, teach them to rehearse those great truths of the gospel and feed that stabbing shame, that misplaced shame, the truth of the gospel. Oh God, would you do that mighty work in us so that we might find deeper joy in you and so that you would receive all the glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. 
please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.